Today's teaching text comes from Psalm 73, 1 through 28. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Daniel Simon from the University of Illinois is a researcher in a field called visual cognition. And he has a famous experiment that you can actually see on YouTube if you go and look for it. It's called the Invisible Gorilla. And the premise of the experiment is pretty simple, even though it's a little bit outrageous. Uh, the people in the experiment are asked to watch a group of people who are passing a basketball around. And uh, the folks passing the ball have different color shirts on. And the participants in the experiment are supposed to count the number of times that the people with one color shirt catch, catch the ball as it moves around. Simple enough, right? Um, however, at some point, fairly early on in the process, uh, someone comes onto the scene dressed as a gorilla in a huge gorilla suit and they start flailing around, dancing around, doing everything they can to sort of uh, get the people's attention. And before the experiment, as people are preparing for it, people assume at rates of over 90% that they are not the kind of people who would miss something like that happening and some sort of right in front of your face event and yet at rates of over 50% they do. They do not see uh, the gorilla. Uh, the experiment kind of goes on to show that if you're looking for the gorilla, you see the gorilla. But if, if your attention is elsewhere, nearly half 
uh, will we'll miss the gorilla. So uh, Simon's point uh, in the experiment is it, it, it comes forth. Basically, uh, our, perf- our perception of reality is really contingent on our mode of attention. Uh, what we are prepared to focus on is going to play a large part in what we are prepared to see or what we, what we do see. It determines what we see. So, um, and, and actually how confident that we might be in our ability to perceive reality correctly uh, doesn't seem to line up actually uh, through this experiment with how often we actually miss things, how often, how often we actually have blind spots. We think that we're seeing the complete picture, but often it, that is determined exactly by what we are focus on, focusing on. Andrew Root, uh, writing on this experiment in the Christian Century, said, we have these deep-seated um, assumptions about how to conceive and represent the world, what philosopher Charles Taylor called social, and, uh, social imaginaries that inform and frame what we give our attention to. Uh, we can and do miss hugely obvious realities when our attention is on something else. I think most of us can uh, admit 2020 has been uh, a wild year so far, right? We're almost out of language for it. It's been a doozy. There's... uh, and there's so much to do. There is so much change um, that is needed in our, in our world. I, I believe that it is as crucial as ever that we as the church, that we as followers of Jesus, that Christians need to live lives of active love in our world in a sacrificial way, in a generous way, in an attentive uh, way to live out the way of Jesus. We must be an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's who we're called to be as Trinity Grace Church, linked up with the churches across the city, linked up with the churches across the world, across the ages, to be these outposts of the reality of the kingdom of God, where God's will and His desires is working through His people in this communal way. Uh, so we need action. We need action. And, and yet, here we are at the beginning of our summer series, a 10-week series, and it is on prayer. <laughs> the language of prayer, how to live a life connected to God. And I want to just give a quick explanation for the reasoning behind a series on prayer instead of a series like you know, actions for justice or, 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 or public love in the way of Jesus, all of which would be appropriate, all of which you could say without a doubt we need at this time in our world. But you know this from experience. There are so many voices, influences, powers that are vying for your attention in the world right now, vying for your affection, offering to help motivate your actions in the world. If we, if we carry the, the metaphor of, of David Simon's experience uh, or experiment forward, uh, we aren't just watching people pass a basketball around. It's more like our actual experience. It's more like people are passing a basketball and people are juggi- juggling flaming swords and people are chasing cats with, with you know, butterfly uh, nets. Uh, things are wild out there. And uh, We are at a time in in our life, in our world, where it takes deep intentionality as a follower of Jesus to be discipled by Christ rather than our newsfeed, rather than Twitter, rather than uh, Instagram, or many of the other shaping forces in our world. What we give our attention to in times like this really, really matters. And for myself, for my family, for our church, I'm not so much concerned about what we choose to do in this day or this week or this month or what we've been doing you know, you know, in the last few weeks. 
we want to work for change. We want to show solidarity. We want to share the gospel. We want to make deep, generous gifts of our time and, and resources. But the question at hand is, how are we going to be sustained? What is going to shape our vision? How are we going to live our whole lives? We need action. Um, but what we choose to focus on is going to tremendously shape us. What we allow to define and motivate that action uh, is going to have huge implications uh, for what is produced in our lives, what is produced in our community, uh, and how we endure, how we sustain the work that God has called us to. And we have a lot of examples of this. Maybe the most famous is the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke, right? It alerts us to this reality of where our focus and attention is and how that translates into sustained action and action that's actually in line with the kingdom of God or not, right? Martha knows that they are going to be playing host to Jesus and his disciples. She knows there's so much to be done. And so what has she done? She's gotten busy doing it. Um, her actions would have uh, appeared to, to almost everyone as absolutely unimpeachable. She's showing hospitality. Uh, she serves She's working hard. Her sister Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And before too long, Martha's frustration shows. She's, she's not doing anything, Jesus. Make her help me, Jesus. Right? We see sort of this frustrated cry. I can't go on knowing that someone else is, 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 is not helping, is not contributing. But Jesus sort of turns the story on its head. He, he says, Mary has chosen the good thing and it will not be taken from her. She's sitting at the feet of Christ. There's, I think there's so much that we can see in this. Um, there's the, the scandal, basically, of Mary sitting uh, at a place in her culture that would have been traditionally reserved for men as a disciple. That's, that's scandalous in its own right. Uh, Mary is, is choosing to sort of shock the cultural expectations that are on her, and she's choosing to abide with Jesus. Um, uh, but, but another crucial thing is, is we, we see the actions of Mary later on in the Gospels. This isn't the only story where we see these two sisters uh, depicted in, in the Gospels. Whatever else was happening when she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, whatever other narratives are going on, it was not an abdication of her responsibility. It, it was not an unwillingness to take meaningful action in the world or sit in some ethereal spiritual place. She, she, she's, she sat at the feet of Jesus, absolutely, but she rose to live out the gospel, to, to live out the reality of the kingdom of God. And that is the dynamic that I hope we, we come to as a church in this summer series. We, we, we want to learn the language of prayer because we want to sit at the feet of Jesus. We want to learn to live our life connected to God so that we're not exhausting ourselves trying to live for God, but we are living in communion with God, in communion with this relational God who's invited us into the dance of relationship that is present and true in God's very being, the diversity and the unity in that diversity that we see even in the Godhead that is reflected all throughout the ripples of our world. We must learn to pray. <laughs> our world needs urgent change, no doubt. Uh, but as followers of Jesus, we urgently must learn to pray. Uh, we urgently must learn to sit at the feet of Jesus uh, so we know what type of actions disciples of Christ need to be taking in this, in this moment in our world and not simply responding to the many cultural, cultural pressures that are on us from all directions. 
For many of us, this is going to uh, be a humbling time. It's going to be a time of confession, a, a time of, of turning in a new direction. For some of us, it's, it's going to be time to face the reality that for many of us, right, your, your prayer life has been shallow, has been one-dimensional, for long periods of time maybe has been non-existent. Um, and so that's tremendously going to affect your vision for life and, 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 and how the actions you take are or are not shaped by Jesus' vision for our world and what, what, what Jesus is leading us into. You think just in the Mary and Martha story, right? Martha's so busy doing things, but she doesn't actually know in that moment what's on Jesus' heart. Mary, do you think if, if Jesus had given her any specific instruction, she would have been unwilling to rise from Jesus' feet and go and carry that exact, exact thing out? When we just pay lip service to prayer, uh, we, we actually live a really disappointed experience of the Christian life. Um, we, we, we live a pretty frustrated experience of existing in the world. So as a church, uh, I, I want to pastorally call us to this. We, we must learn to pray so we know how to live. I love how Andrew Root uh, in the Christian century he, 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 uh, brought out the uh, sort of some of the implications of that experiment about our attention. And he says this, Prayer is the broadening of our attention on the world around us, looking for the arrival of God who announces himself by speaking to us and calling us to pray for others in and through the actions of ministry. Jesus is the minister because he prays for us. God is so fully a speaking God of ministry that he is, he is the never-ending discourse of the Father and Son through the Spirit in prayer. That's a picture into the life of the Trinity. Andrew Root goes on, To teach people to pray is to call them into ministry. It is to pray together in and through the acts of ministry. Prayers of thanksgiving and praise are for the arrival of God as minister. Prayer is never abstract, even in the form of praise. We praise God not as a metaphysical force heralding attributes disconnected from God's arriving action in the world. Rather, in prayer, we praise God for His faithfulness as minister, for the ways He's acted for us by ministering to us. In prayer, we praise God not as a disconnected deity, but as the God who freed Israel from Egypt and resurrected Jesus from the dead, who is acting among us. Church, we need to know how to pray so we know how to act. We need to know how to pray so we can endure. We need to know how to pray because the changes that we're most needing in our world are not going to come just by human efforts alone. We need God to break down strongholds. We need God to transform us. We need God to, to take us from frustration to love, from, 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 from bitterness to, to openness, a possibility of change. Our world needs change change absolutely but we need to do that from a place of abiding from a place of sitting at the feet of Jesus and rising to live out the gospel so I'm so thrilled for this summer I'm so thrilled for this series this series on the language of prayer we're going to have the most wide-ranging group of voices that we've ever had at our church some of the the craziness of 2020 has shaken things up in such a way that that we have an opportunity to get people in just to, to speak to us as a church that it might have been much more difficult to do in, in the normal environment with people having to be at their own churches 
But uh, uh, you're, you're going to hear how to pray the scriptures. You're going to hear how to intercede for someone, how to talk to God, how to listen to God, how to pray in delight, yes, but also how to pray in sorrow, how to pray in the midst of spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare, how to pray as a prophet, how to pray for justice, how, how to pray in confession and repentance, how to wait on God, how to give thanksgiving, how to pray when you're beyond language. This is going to be such a good summer for us. And I just want to say, listen, I know some of you are going to be traveling. Some of you are so tired of being stuck in your homes. I want to say wherever you find yourself this summer, I want to invite you to go on this journey with us. I want to ask you, I want to call you, pastorally charge you to make a priority to learn to pray with us together as a church this summer. Uh, This is a unique opportunity for us. I cannot wait for you to hear the voices that are going to be speaking to our church uh, this, this summer. Please prioritize wherever you are tuning in with us on Sundays or, or, or sometime during the week, I, ideally on Sunday so we can have the Zoom gatherings afterwards and, and, and hang out with one another. But uh, make a commitment that this summer is going to be a summer you grow as a person of prayer. So with the remainder of our time, uh, how's that for a little intro? Uh, I, I, I want us to look at Psalm 73. And uh, this comes nearly right in the middle, if you're doing the math, of the prayer book of Israel. This is a psalm, quite honestly, right, you have some, I have some psalms that are sort of like old friends to me. Psalm 105, God has powerfully used it so many times in my life, uh, calling my family to, or Alice and I, to move to New York, like, uh, you know, almost two decades ago of, of um you know, just speaking to us in times of crisis, in times of provision. I have Psalm 34, a psalm that I basically memorize in times of intense anxiety in my, in my life. Psalm 25 is in that same category. So how many times have I gone to Psalm 51 to scrape out my heart in repentance to God? And so there are certain psalms that I've learned so much from over the years. And actually Psalm 73 is one of those. It's one of those psalms that, that has, has taught me so much about prayer over the years, and uh, it continues to speak to me. It is a psalm, that, like so many, it is a psalm of emotional resonance. Um, it is a psalm of vulnerable honesty. Uh, it, it is a psalm that cries for justice, but also uh, a psalm that is lamenting the condition of the world. Um, it is one of the psalms where you get to see change take place, even in, even in the prayer, right? It, it gives us a window into the person who's praying, and we see their perspective change in the presence of God. Uh, Ellen F. Davis, who is an Old Testament scholar from Duke, and she has a tremendous book called Getting Involved with God that I've returned to about how to read the Psalms and how to read the Proverbs and how to read some tricky parts of, of, the, of the Hebrew Scriptures that, that may make you a little resistant. But she has a tremendous uh, section in, in her book, Getting Involved with God, on the Psalms. I love what she says about Psalms like Psalm 73. She said, The Psalms model ways of talking to God that are honest, yet not obvious. At least they are not obvious to modern Christians. They may guide our first steps towards deeper involvement with God because the Psalms give us a new possibility for prayer. They invite full disclosure. They enable us to bring into our conversations with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. The point of the shocking psalms is not to sanctify what is shameful, for example, the desire for sweet revenge, or to make us feel better about the parts of ourselves that stand in need of change. Rather, the psalms teach us that profound change happens always in the presence of God. 
over and over, they attest to the reality that when we open our minds and hearts fully to God who made them, then we open ourselves, whether we know it or not, to the possibility of being transformed beyond our imagining. I love that. You can bring where you really are to God in prayer, right? We don't pray what we ought to pray. We pray what is really present in our lives. We, we, we pray what we, what we can, not what we can't. Um, psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, uh, which shakes things up a bit. It's not a psalm of David, who wrote nearly half of them. It's not by the sons of Korah, whoever those guys were. Uh, it's not by Moses. Um, and interestingly, we actually know quite a bit about Asaph's life, a lot more than we know about some of the characters that we meet in the scriptures. And for comparison, uh, Asaph is kind of like the Bernie Taupin of the Psalms. And uh, uh, prize for you if you know who Bernie Taupin is. Who knows who Bernie Taupin is out there? Let me hear you. Let me hear those answers. Some of those were totally wrong. Okay, um, they do that on the kids' video, and my kids always answer back. So I don't know if you, if you just shouted at your screen, but you guys know who Bernie Taupin was. I'll tell you, he was Elton John's songwriting partner for years, right? Uh, he he put the the word so many times to uh, to, to to Elton's me melodies, and and that's actually flipped because David would write the words and Asaph would write the mu music. But you get the idea, right? Everybody knows Elton John. Almost nobody knows Bernie Taupin. Uh, everybody. Everybody knows David. Uh, very few people know Asaph, but you folks, because you're here. The beginning of our language of prayer series, you're going to learn about who Asaph is. Let's do this. Um, Asaph was a young priest from the tribe of Levi. Uh, when David the king brought the ark back into Jerusalem, this triumphant moment where David famously dances in his underwear, makes his wife very upset. Um, this is a time of huge celebration. And Asaph's father, uh, Berechiah, was appointed doorkeeper of the ark in, in David's, uh, David's Israel. And so Asaph was so talented musically, David takes notice and he puts him in charge of the music that was ministering before the ark of the covenant. Um, David was assisted by his brother, Zechariah. Zachari uh, he remained in charge of the music in Jerusalem for 40 years. Uh, he's thought to have been the one, as I said, who was a songwriting partner to David, that he would have put many of David's psalms um, to, 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 to music and to melody. Um, he knew that, that God had, had given a great promise to David, that his son, uh, would, would, someone from his line would be the Messiah and establish the kingdom of God that would last forever in the world. Think about that promise. Think about that level of expectation. David assumed that that son was going to be Solomon, who would, uh, 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 you know, who would uh, succeed him as king. So as David passes away, Think about Asaph's life. He's, he's, he's been unexpectedly noticed. Uh, his dad doing his job. He gets called into this role where he's, he's ministering before the ark. His, his, his star is on the rise. His prominence is increasing. He's working with the king. They're songwriting partners. You can imagine how he would have been celebrated. But then David passes away. Solomon ascends to the throne and the temple begins to be built. Asaph no doubt would have thought he was living right in the middle of the golden age of the world. God is doing incredible things. He's bringing an eternal kingdom. I'm right in the middle of it. But after Solomon took the throne and the temple was built, right, we know things began to change. Solomon actually in many ways turns his back on Yahweh. He pursues power, wealth, luxury. He takes many, many mistresses um, 
He worships false gods. The kingdom begins to deteriorate. He actually turns his countrymen, who he's, who's meant to be serving and leading, into this new way. He, he, he turns them into slaves to, uh, to finance his own extravagance. So Asaph, from the heights of expectation and even fulfillment, would have now seen Solomon become a wicked man. And, and his brother, who he worked closely with, vocally opposed Solomon, and his brother was killed for it. Asaph saw the kingdom split because of Solomon's selfishness and oppression, and it impacted him deeply personally. He lost his brother. This man had true reasons to be disillusioned with God, to say, listen, things are supposed to be this way, but they are not. God is supposed to act in a certain way, but it doesn't seem that way when I look around at my world. So, the Psalms of Asaph, uh, they invite us to bring our frustration and our disillusionment before God in prayer. I think it's helpful to have even some of that story uh, in, in our minds as we hear the words of this psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? You see a man wanting to have hope. But, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Right? Here's a man whose, whose world is falling apart. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, right? The extravagance of Solomon's kingdom. Struggling to believe what he knew to be true about God. He had seen God's goodness to his people. He had seen King David bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He knew that David wasn't a perfect person by any means, but his heart was bent towards Yahweh. And now he recognizes he's losing his footing. His world is crumbling. He's nearly lost his grip on trusting God. And you sort of have a before and an after in the psalm. And I want you to to pay real close attention to the language that he uses. I'm going to be willing to read it again to you so that you'll hear it, even though we heard it as the teaching text was read. He's he's looking out at those in the world who are not walking in the way of Yahweh, who are not walking in the way of God. And he says, they have no struggles. You ever feel that way? Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by, by, by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Right Here's a poet wringing out his talent to say, things are not right. And he, right, he does what all of us do. He imagines he can and understand everyone else's motivations perfectly. But, but he goes on, Therefore, their people turn to them to drink up waters in abundance. They say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. How many of you felt like that in 2020? You get up and you grab your phone at the beginning of the day and you're like, oh, I should, have, I should have started my day in the presence of God, but now I'm reading the headlines and every day brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Here's an honest man venting his soul to God. This is a part of what prayer is. If we are ever really going to pray, we have to start with where we actually are and vent our hearts, vent our souls to God. He's struggling to believe. He's angry at the condition of the world. He's deeply troubled. I want to say uh, this is a prayerful protest. 
This poem would have been published publicly. And uh, right, we, we know over the last couple of weeks and months, it has been such an honor um, to, to go out into the streets of, of our city and to pray and to worship and to protest uh, over these past months. And, and, and the most inspiring to me has been to see the church uniting in the streets to pray and say, we need change to take place. And I think Asaph is modeling for that, uh, us for that in Psalm 73, right? It would have been quite a risk for Asaph to publish this prayer for protest as well. It wouldn't have taken too much deep inference from those who read it to know who he's talking about in the psalm. It's not like it's, it's terribly masked or hidden who he's referencing. He's referencing those in power. This prayer is a cry for justice, to scrape out our hearts before God and say, you've got to change this, is a part of what it is to learn how to pray. But I want you to pay close attention to where the psalm turns. In verse 17, right, he's pouring out his heart to God. He's so frustrated. He, he, he's, 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 you know, painting with a broad brush everyone around him. And then he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. In the presence of God, things begin to change. His perspective begins to be adjusted. Then I understood their situation, their final destiny, right? When we come into the presence of God in prayer, it has the power to change our perspective. We, we, we have to, whatever it means, we have to learn to enter that sanctuary of God. Remember what Ellen Davis said, change happens in the presence of God. Remember the story from Mary and Martha. It is sitting at Jesus' feet. And, and such a, a, a perspective shift takes place as Asaph begins to worship, as Asaph begins to lift up his heart to Yahweh, as Asaph begins to sense that, that God is drawing near, that God, he's not just speaking to God, but God is speaking back to him. And there's a before and after that takes place. Once he goes into the presence of God, he begins to experience a new perspective, a new attitude, a, a new sense of what his world is, is actually like and what's going on and what's possible. Then he says, hang on a minute. I haven't been looking at this right. And in the, the after, he says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, can completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So now he's starting to see, oh, I actually had a role to play in this whole thing as well. It's not like evil and brokenness is just out there. It starts to come crashing into his own heart. Yet I am always with you. The nearness of God changes everything. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. I'm not stumbling along on my own. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. We almost don't have time to get fully into everything that changes in Asaph's heart, but he begins to sense actually what's shallow around him. He has this profound sense of the wisdom of Yahweh that starts to inform his heart, that starts to inform his mind, change his perspective. He starts to see actually what truly has value rather than just what looks like temporary success, right? The, 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 the uh, chronology that we live in sometimes fogs our picture of what kairos realities and realities of God are taking place in our world. He begins to sense what is, is, uh, is shallow. He has wisdom. He begins to understand his own heart. Humility starts to break in. He starts to grasp his own condition. But then most importantly, he knows that God is near. That is what ultimately is his comfort. It is what sustains him. 
if we need endurance, what is going to sustain us? We need guidance. What is going to guide us? Counsel from your word. We need hope. Hope that this action is not meaningless. Hope that, that this next generation is not going to be fighting this exact same struggle in the exact same way. How can we go forward in a world that must change? And we see Asaph in this very prayer go from basically despair to hope, from despair to joy. And then we get to this declaration, right? This is what we write the worship songs out of, and we need the rest of it, honestly. Because he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's sometimes when I hear that stuff in worship songs and I'm like, yeah, right. You're, at, that's, you're exaggerating. That is not true. There's so much more in life that you want besides God. Look at your life. Look at my life. But I think we need the full picture of what Asaph has gone through in the psalm to get to the point where he can actually say from some place of integrity in his own soul, God, if I have you and nothing else, then I really do have what I need. Because you're the one who can guide me. You're the one who can comfort me. You're the one who can counsel me. You're the one who can take me into my future that you've declared for me in advance. The promises, the Messiah, all the way back to David, the whole layers of his story coming together. And so it is, however trembling and honesty it is, it is an honesty as, as vulnerable as he was in his accusation in the beginning. We have to take seriously this movement of worship. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. I've seen literally someone who had it all and stalked around the castle in misery. Right? We have so many examples of people who've gotten what we think we want, and it's not enough. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a family line for Asaph. He's from the line of the Levites. And when they came into the promised land that God had promised for Israel, everyone was given a portion of land except the Levites. And God said to the Levites, My presence is your inheritance. My presence is your portion. And church, we are in that line of Levites, this priesthood of all believers. What is our inheritance? What is our portion? The presence of God. Till we go into the sanctuary where our joy is found, where our confidence is found, where our perspective is found. And you know what? That cannot be taken away from you. Not only that, but God has the capacity and ability to give back to us what our sufferings have taken. Every time we pray, we have the potential to begin in one place and to end in another. Every time we sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary, we have the opportunity to hear the voice of Christ speak to us so that we can rise and live out the gospel with vision, with courage, with endurance, with passion, with much action, yes, but from a place of abiding. Church, we have to learn to pray. We're going to take this summer to press in to prayer, to pray so we know how to act, to pray so we can endure, to pray because the changes that we need most are not going to come by human effort alone. So I want to invite you, take the model of Psalm 73. You want a place to start? Start where you are. Vent your soul to God. Make your prayer. No matter... Let it come out exactly as it comes out. You don't have to filter it. Pour your heart out before God. Uh, 
give your prayerful protest as Asaph did. Make your art in whatever way. Many of you think, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not an artist, whatever. No, let the expression of your soul come out in the way that is true to you. And that is your art. Write down your prayer. Write down your song. Journal it. Walk in the park. Move out into justice. Move out into generosity. We have to be people who resist evil. That is what Asaph is in the middle of doing as he prays in Psalm 73. So vent your soul, make your prayer, create your art, resist evil, go to the sanctuary. Church, go to the sanctuary. You can find it in the corner of your house. You can find it on your couch. You can find it walking through Prospect Park. You can find it, even find it on the F train. You can find it on vacation. You can find it in your Zoom rooms. Go to the sanctuary. Our God is present to you cry out to him for priorities, for perspective, for joy, for endurance. I want to ask you, like you never have in your life, commit to learn to pray this summer. Even if you have been praying your whole life, commit to learn to pray this summer. We're going to have a wide range of voices that are going to help shape and grow and encourage and challenge and maybe give you perspective you haven't had before. Commit to shape your life presence, formation, and love around these realities prayerfully. That we would seek God's presence, that we would walk in the way of Jesus so that we can live lives of action, lives of active love. That is my call to you as our church. That's my pastoral challenge to you, to every one of you, to learn to pray this summer. May we be deeper as a people who commune with God at the end of the summer than we ever have been. Let me pray for you right now in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, come strengthen, build up your church. Meet with us, God. May there be many moments in our summer where we say, I felt this way. I was, I was, I was racking my brain. I was overwhelmed in my heart. I was deeply troubled. I was in sorrow till I came into the sanctuary. And it's not like every circumstance changed then. But our perspective changed. Our endurance was strengthened. Our worship was kicked up. God, may we learn to pray. May we learn to vent our soul to you. Come, Holy Spirit, teach your people to pray. Teach us to pray. May our lives be a prayerful protest against the darkness and brokenness of this world. But may it come, Lord, may it come from a place of abiding. Disciple us, Jesus. There are so many other voices. Let us hear yours. Cut through. God, let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.